2: It is interesting to me because Barbados is so much at the forefront of the, the talk about reparations, about shedding these colonial ties and these, uh, the vestiges of, of colonialism. And, and so it's, it's starting that conversation... Of
3: this is Cindy Celeste. They're a Barbadian writer and spoken word poet, and we spoke to them during our trip to the Caribbean. They became involved with the reparations movement in 2020 when the death of George Floyd sparked protests and the pulling down of statues around the world. Cindy spoke at the decommissioning of a statue of Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson in Bridgetown.
4: When you talk, Cindy, about the need for for self reparation,
2: what do you mean? When I talk about self-reparation, it's very much from my experience. Like I said, I before the movement to take down the Nelson statue, before I was given the honour of speaking at the, the Republic Transition Ceremony for Barbados, I didn't have a lot of feelings. I, I was neither here nor there. I didn't know a lot of, of the history of, of the spaces that I was occupying, and I had to do a, a whole lot of research to actually like get into it. And when I first did that research and interacted with all the information in front of me I was like I was very mad I was very angry I was ashamed I was like why did I not know this mm. it's not fair that I didn't know this and I realized um, that there are a lot of people who occupy that space that they just they just don't know they don't know the history they don't of, know the history of they, they know the history of slavery but um, they don't know how that relates to the importance of reparations they don't know how um, the statue standing in Hero Square is a bad thing and so they don't have these they don't have very strong feelings towards it either way. And so when I talk about self reparations, I talk about the way in which I had to forgive myself for not knowing, the way in which I had to become aware that the system is designed for me not to know and then make an active choice to know and to do something with that knowledge.
3: What would you say to people back in the UK listening to this? program um, coming across reparations for the first time you've come to it from the position of of a Bajan who's come to this with all of the history of living here and the experiences that you've had a lot of people in the United Kingdom just really maybe have come across it in, in history they know that something happens but they're unaware they would be surprised that a statue of Nelson was taken down because he wasn't an overt slaver. So I mean, how would you, what would you say to them? What message would you give to those people in the UK listening that they need to think about?
2: I think it's, it's very much a walk in other people's shoes for a minute. Just shed all of the, the ideas that you have and try to see the other perspective.
4: Listening back to that conversation with Cindy now in our final episode, Clive, prompts so many reflections for me because that was so early on. We just got to Barbados. Uh, We were just trying to explore the legacies of enslavement and the call for reparations. But this idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is what we've tried to do, isn't it? Me as a descendant of enslavers, you as a descendant of the enslaved. And we've tried to give people the perspective, the facts, everything that Cindy is outlining is kind of what we tried to do. That's right.
3: And and over the last few weeks, we've been trying to find out whether Britain and other former colonial powers should pay reparations to the former British Caribbean islands. And if so, what those reparations would look like. But I guess, Laura, how do you think that's come across to other people, the relationship between me and you?
4: Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, I'm very aware that the reparations movement, of course, is black-led and that for somebody who isn't black to come into that conversation... And that space, as we would say in the jargon, is controversial. But maybe you know more about that than me, Clive. So, yeah, there's been pushback.
3: Um, I think some people might think I have Stockholm Syndrome, that you've somehow taken me hostage. (laughs) But, you know, look, there's been a mixed reception in the black community. Some people feel that this has to be black-led. It should be black voices that are championing this. But actually, my view is that the way we're going to take this forward is through collaboration we have to face up to the reality that you have certain privileges as a white person um, and that cultural capital, I think, can be utilised and used in a good and constructive way, which I think it is. So I think it will open a few eyes to the fact that our relationship is one which I think others can learn from as well.
4: I mean, to me, the interesting bit is that the reception in the Caribbean and then amongst the Black British Reparations movement to our Family's apology and payment of reparations in Grenada is very different. So in the Caribbean, it's like, well, where have you been all these years? Descendants of enslavers. Right, let's get to work. You know, come, come. This is what you can do. But it's very different in Britain. And I think you put your finger on it when you said, well, the Caribbean... These are black-led societies, and that is not the case in Britain.
3: That's right. People here in Britain have had structural racism. They've experienced Windrush and the scandal of that. They've experienced, you know, worse jobs, worse economic conditions, racism. Yeah, I think that it does explain a lot about the different reactions that we've had.
4: So, in this episode, we're going to try and take all of this and ask whether this British government, maybe not this one, maybe another one, would consider reparatory justice for the Caribbean. None of this This is straightforward, Clive. So after everything we have heard, what's going to happen now?
3: This is Heirs of Enslavement. Now, last time we spoke to Bail Ribeiro Addy, my Labour colleague, about the reparatory justice movement in Britain. As the chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on African Reparations, she seemed optimistic about the outlook for British politicians to take this seriously.
4: But in austerity, Britain, as we keep hearing, how much does that really represent the political will on this issue? Bell also told us how, for some politicians, this is a pie-in-the-sky policy, the idea of reparations for the Caribbean over slavery, something that's good but is very unlikely to actually happen.
3: And for some other politicians, it's not even a good idea. In fact, Bell asked our current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, if his government would apologise for Britain's role... In the transatlantic slave trade, here's what he said.
5: So I want to ask the Prime Minister today if he will do what Bernie Grant asked all those years ago, what I have asked and what countless others have asked since, and offer a full and meaningful apology for our country's role in slavery and colonialism and commit to reparatory justice.
0: Yeah.
6: Minister. No, well, no, 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 Mr Speaker. that What I think our
0: focus should now be on doing is, of course, understanding our history in all its parts, not running away from it, uh, but right now making sure that we have a society which is inclusive, and
3: tolerant of people from all backgrounds. Uh, that's something that we on this house, side of the House are committed to doing and will continue to deliver. But trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward and it's not something that we will focus our energies on.
4: Clive, what's it like for you as a Member of Parliament hearing Britain's Prime Minister basically say no to reparations? We shouldn't unpick our history.
3: It's a mixture of emotions. Um... A part of me is unsurprised, given the political party and tradition he comes from. But as a son of empire, disappointment. I would have thought he might have put a bit more thought into that answer, but it was just so dismissive. So disappointed, but not surprised, I think.
4: He did say we shouldn't run from our history. I mean, is there a possibility next year there's going to be a general election in Britain if there's a change of government, if it's a Labour government, if David Lammy is the foreign secretary, a child of the Caribbean, British Guyanese, could there be a change? Could Britain's government begin negotiations with the Caribbean on the basis of its ten-point plan for reparations? Two parts
3: to that answer. I think it depends on which history we shouldn't be running from. And I think I don't think me and Rishi Sunak would necessarily agree on what that history is. I think we've got the correct history. But do I think there are opportunities with a, a kind of with David Lammy as as potential foreign secretary and a Labour government? Yes, because under a Labour government you know that some of those more progressive issues, that's a crack in the door and you can put your shoulder to that and you can open it. So I think that we, we need to kind of be hopeful and uh, I think organise ourselves for if there is a change of government.
4: So, to try and get some broader perspective on this, we spoke to Stephen Bush from the Financial Times. He's of South African descent. We wanted to try and get an idea about all the discussions going on behind the scenes. And he's written previously about why he feels that reparations aren't practical as government fiscal policy. So, we asked him to explain why.
0: The reasons why I conclude, well, I'm not sure this is particularly practical, is... Essentially, the important and urgent task is giving people money to repair the gap. Where I think reparations can become impractical is it then becomes an argument about the specific people who should provide the money. And actually, the example I ended up using was EU structural funds, right? Where you have this weird irony that the UK, through its time as an EU member, has paid more money to repair the damage done by the Soviet empire to central and eastern European states than it has to pay the damage it did as, a, as an empire. But in many ways, the most important thing is just that someone did need to pay to allow Lithuania, et cetera, et cetera, to um, make that transition, um, and the EU was willing to do so. If we were trying to get it out of the successor state of the Soviet Union, there'd still be no money now. And so my instinct is that um, while it's obviously brilliant and lots of philanthropists have taken it up on themselves to step up and do that, in terms of the work of states, it kind of feels to me a bit like taking all of the arguments we know are so difficult to make about international development and then adding another difficult argument on top. And I kind of just think, We should just prioritise the, you know, I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but as Bob Gulliff wants to put it, the give us your effing money bit of the argument rather than the give us this specific bit of effing money.
4: So CARICOM has a 10-point plan, uh, you know, the formerly British Caribbean. They want investment in education, health, debt relief. Is that realistic for Britain's government or other European governments to do that, the former colonial powers?
0: Yeah, I mean, they're obviously a reasonable set of asks. They're the kind of thing that we should, I think, do more of with the international aid budget where, you know, a state has a here's what we want to do. Here's our clear plan for how we're going to do it rather than what can sometimes happen in aid spending, which is this kind of slightly abstract money to promote democracy, money to, promote yeah, you know, and without a particularly good, good sense of, of where it goes. So I think it is... Um, it's possible, and just from a financial perspective, it's where the money is going to have to come from in a lot of these cases. Uh, my instinct is is that the argument for their plan is probably more successful if it is removed from the um, the debate about historical wrongs because it just then becomes an excuse for lots of historians and in many cases people who aren't actually historians to go on TV and go like, ah, but haven't you also considered that if it weren't for the empire, then we wouldn't have defeated Hitler as if it was some, as you know, as if like history was some kind of weird like moral accounting uh, game where it's like, oh, you know, you've, you know, you've used one morality token helping to defeat Imperial Japan. That means you can have like, you can spend that morality token on the triangular slave trade.
4: So you mean if the Caribbean's (laughs) reparations demand was not linked to slavery, you think it would have more chance of success?
0: Yeah. Because I essentially think, broadly speaking, there's a, there's a group of people who intuitively get the, as I say, the arguments about compound interest. And, you know, ultimately, if you have one group of people who are literally prohibited w- from keeping the fruits of their labor and another group who get to keep not only the fruits of their labor, but the, the fruits of the first group, obviously, generationally over time, though, they aren't competing on a level playing field. I think there's a group of people who immediately get that and they go, well, of course, you've got to you've got to invest and spend in in, in repairing that historical uh, funding gap. You then have another group of people who get the argument for transfers from the rich to poor, but who maybe aren't necessarily on board with the idea of, yeah, they kind of go like, oh, but I didn't do it, or, well, I'm actually descended from a so-and-so and I didn't benefit from X, Y, Z. And so I... I essentially always think whenever you're asking someone something, you should try and find the, like, broadest way of, you know, you, you kind of, you don't want to change the policy ask, but you do want to change the, the, like, tone in which you're asking it. And I think it is more difficult to get people to uh, pay up money f- through the reparations argument than just the these people need the money argument.
4: So it's pretty complicated, as Stephen Bush is outlining there. But to me, Clive, this idea of, you know, reparations under another name, and we explored this, didn't we, in that episode where we talked to Avinash Persaud, the Barbados climate envoy, about the idea that climate resiliency funding is a responsibility of the former colonial powers because the Caribbean is suffering from the effects of climate change and and nobody chose to be there. So, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I kind of feel on this, if, if you're going to kind of call this something else, kind of slip some money, backhand some money over to these countries, then it feels to me that you're not actually tackling the root cause of so many of the problems we see. Uh, and and so I don't think that's a viable way forward, because I think it's already been said by some of, uh, some of the people we spoke to in the Caribbean. If this is just like some money handed out, they're going to go back into debt. They're going to still have the climate crisis facing them. They're still going to have all the kind of things that we've seen happen so far happening to them in the Caribbean. So I think it's really important that this is faced head on. We look we look people in the eyes and we deal with it directly rather than naming it something, giving it another name.
4: Well, and with this idea, you wouldn't have an apology for slavery, would you? You wouldn't have Britain's government apologising for what happened. And that's the first point in CARICOM's 10-point plan for reparations, the Caribbean communities ask of the former colonial powers, they want a full apology for what happened.
3: That's right. If you have an argument with a partner, Laura, and Never. You uh, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> and you do something wrong and you go, look, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go and buy yourself a new jacket um, or something like that. Well, then you know they're probably not that sorry. But if they actually sit you down, look you in the eye and say, I know I've... Damaged our relationship. How do I genuinely repair that, and make it better? And that's the start of the conversation. Then you can ask for the jacket and a pair of boots if you wanted to, <laughs> but, or whatever it was you wanted. But what I would say about Stephen is a very, very clever and smart individual, but he's also kind of very establishment. You know, he works for the FT. And, you know, it reminds me of Frederick Douglass and his comment, which was that power concedes nothing without demand. And I think you have to push further and farther then you then the, comf, the kind of comfort zone of the political class at the moment if you want to put it that way to be able to achieve some of the goals that we're talking about
4: so if britain's government isn't going to apologize for slavery isn't going to pay reparations is there a legal case against britain's government for the period of slavery To find out, we decided we'd better talk to a lawyer, not just any lawyer, Jackie Mackenzie, who practices both here in Britain and in Grenada. She is Grenadian and British. She specialises in human rights and immigration. She has a long track record of representing, for example, many of the victims of the Windrush scandal. And recently she moved to Lee Day, a big law firm which has a pretty strong track record in the area of reparations.
3: In 2012, the firm won a case on behalf of 5,000 Kenyan nationals who were subjected to torture and other forms of ill treatment at the hands of the British colonial administration during the so-called Kenya emergency in the 1950s. The claimants received a full apology from the British government and £19.9 million in compensation.
4: Now, of course, it is important to note that that case was concerning living people, the Mau Mau, who had experienced this in person. So it isn't really a precedent for the descendant of an enslaved person trying to get reparations for slavery. But it does show how a case like this can have a legal outcome.
3: And Jackie now leads their Windrush immigration and social justice cases. And given her long involvement with the Reparatory Justice for the Caribbean movement, we thought she'd be the perfect person to ask whether there's a legal case that Grenada and other former British Caribbean nations could bring against the British government.
5: I'm not quite sure that there is a specific legal case at the moment. We are still researching that. Um, So there are a number of things to look at. Firstly, the British government, and I would imagine other governments, but my focus is on the British government. The British government will argue that slavery was legal at the time of the transatlantic slave trade. So that's one of the first problems we encounter, that various uh, lawyers and thinkers on this issue would say, well, you know, it was something legal. However, we've gone right back into the history, and we find that the idea, although there is no actual specific statutory provision or instrument, there is uh, proclamations and declarations which outlaws slavery for English and Welsh and Scottish and Irish people. Now, what does that mean for the transatlantic slave trade? It's not very clear. Because hmm. what we've also found in the literature, that it didn't apply to Africans who were the people that were enslaved when we talk about the Caribbean and the Caracom region, because they weren't deemed to be people. They were deemed to be chattels. So we have in law a principle called absurdity, where if a law is so absurd, it ought to be set aside. And that's one of the things we're now looking at. We're looking at was this idea that African people were chattel rather than human beings, so absurd to go back into history and look for the repealing of any provisions that provided for slavery to be illegal amongst people in the domain, but not Africans.
3: Jackie, do you think other kind of cases of reparations, so at the end of the World War II, uh, the Mau Mau which is something I know yourself you, you yourself have been involved with, do they strengthen your hand, you think, when it comes to making the arguments about reparations?
5: I think cases like the Mau Mau, which my firm has been involved in rather than me, because it predated my... Uh, arrival at the firm um, does give us some sort of impetus and some sort of courage in that we found judges who were prepared. I mean, one of the problems here is this whole idea of opening the floodgates um, in nations which are quite impoverished themselves. I mean, the UK is quite impoverished at the moment. It might not be in terms of its reserves and bank balances. But it certainly is in terms of how the rank-and-file British person experiences their life at the moment with the cost-of-living crisis and other crises. And so you're going to be pitted against, one, the public sentiment that perhaps reparations is not a priority, but you're also going to have judges who are reluctant. And I'm not saying judges who are corrupt, but where you have discretion, judges will always err on the side of not opening up a floodgate to an argument so I think it would be very difficult to find a judge who would rule unless the arguments the legal arguments are quite finite and I don't know that the legal arguments are finite at the moment because we're still researching and developing them we've also seen a case um, with Martinique and the French that the Martinican reparationists have also lost um, so the legal appetite is is very difficult, but it doesn't deter us. We have to look for the evidence. We've also got to look for the legal arguments, mm. and we hope it will at least bring people to the negotiating table, if nothing else.
3: I think it was fascinating what Jackie said. I think it's one of the mechanisms which will perhaps eventually lead us to seeing reparations, I don't think it's going to resulting them on its own. And I think it, it adds to the whole narrative. But I don't think simply taking the British government to court and winning that case is going to make them pay out. And even if it did, it's the wrong way. They have to come to this organically, in my view.
4: Right. Suing is always <laughs> the last resort, isn't it? But I thought what was so interesting about what Jackie said was the way that when you have a legal action, yeah, it can uncover arguments and documents that can lead to the building of a, of a wider case.
3: So where does that leave Grenada and its fellow former British islands? Well, I sat down with someone who can give us a real insight into the country's next steps the Grenadian Prime Minister, Dickon Mitchell.
1: If you look at a lot of the actions, you have very little control over these, these policies. There's nothing to negotiate. It's essentially you take it or, or, or you, you leave it. Um, and I think that's really the, the, the challenge in terms of um, consequences.
3: That's coming up after the break.
4: Well, during our time in the Caribbean, there was one person that we were desperately, desperately trying to pin down for a face-to-face interview, wasn't there, Clive? But despite all our efforts, all our doorstepping, three hours in the convention centre in Grenada in the heat didn't quite happen.
3: That's right, Laura. We were wanting to talk to the elusive (laughs) Dickon Mitchell, the Prime Minister of Grenada, since we started talking about the series. But Prime Ministers, being Prime Ministers, they're not people with very many gaps Mm -mm. in their schedule. Which is why, when we eventually managed to find one during a trip he was taking to London, we made a decision to take the opportunity, despite you not being there at the time, Laura. So And we had a really long, really varied conversation. Too long for this episode, in fact. So we're going to be putting part of that conversation out as an additional bonus episode. Yay! But I want to play just a little bit of it here for you because I think it really sheds a light on where Grenada is placing itself on the global stage in relation both to reparations and development. I asked Prime Minister Mitchell about the consequences of Britain not paying reparations or investing in Grenada.
1: I think there are always consequences. I would say, for example, if one speaks about the influence of China in the region, why is that? Uh, There may be many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because to a large extent, Europe, the UK, North America, have completely ignored the Caribbean over the last 20 years. I'm sure the technical people will come and give charts that says things like, you know, well, the US still invest in the Caribbean you know, or private investors still invest and so on. But the truth is, you can actually say to them, in the, for example, in the case of Grenada, actually prove that. You know, yes, you know, cooperation on things like security and, and so on. But I can give basic examples. Um, the Chinese government offers scholarships to, to Grenadian students. The American government doesn't. I mean, in simple basic stuff that deals with human development, ignoring governments, you know, um, and it's simple things like that that makes a difference for a small country which obviously wants to enhance its human capacity. So I just give give examples. I like that. You, we have visa-free travel between Greenland and, and, and China. You know, you can go to China with a, if you're a Grenadian with a the visa. America is four hours away. Every Grenadian needs to go to Barbados, get biometrics done, incur a lot of money, airplane, hotel, taxi, just to get a visa. And oftentimes, what are you going to do? Simply visit a Grenadian who lives and works and helps to build the US for a two-week vacation, right? So. When you pursue policies like that, and these policies have been uh, in existence for a long time, it, it creates a situation where even if you wanted to, it's difficult to, to, to not have, in a sense, friends or, or seek alternative friends or diversify uh, your, your governmental relations simply because you're a small island. Uh, and you can't, as we say, put all your eggs in, in, one, in one basket. So the, the reality is, if you look at a lot of the actions they come through multilateral institutions oftentimes, whether it's IMF, World Bank, et cetera. Um, you have very little control over these, these policies. There's nothing to negotiate. It's essentially you take it or, or, or you, you leave it. And I think that's really the, the, the challenge in terms of consequences. Um, and then, in a sense, people panic and they worry about the security interests or the geopolitical interests and so on. So I think, in a sense, unwittingly, you know, given our history, um one may argue, for better or for worse, um, given the close nature of the history that we're family. But if you don't look after your family members, if you pay them no mind, um, then they're going to seek, you know, in a sense, a familiar relationship elsewhere. And I think that, in a sense, from a geopolitical perspective is, 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 is the consequence. Um, but I also think, you know, it's a mistake, I think, on their part. Um, I think naturally our ties are closer. The history, uh, the culture, the language, the values. And so I actually think it's in the UK's interest, it's in America's interest, it's in Europe's interest, to invest in the Caribbean, to care about the Caribbean, and to help. No matter how big you are, you need allies, you need friends, you need partners. Um, and I think it's better to partner with people who share similar values like you, who share history or common history.
4: It's incredibly moving for me to hear Grenada's Prime Minister, Dickon Mitchell, talking to you there, Clive, about how Grenada's a democracy, the Caribbean islands are democracies because they were British, and yet it's China that they're looking to for investment and for interest because China, through its Belt and Road initiative... Uh, one could say is is using the Caribbean to build airports and infrastructure so that China has an economic basis to move its goods around the world. And because Britain isn't interested in the Caribbean's reparations agenda, Britain hasn't invested in the Caribbean, the Caribbean's looking to China, but not out of choice.
3: That's right. I mean, Baila Biradi, um, my colleague, said Britain's being left behind. And it does feel that way. I mean, we heard continuously from economic advisors and politicians in the Caribbean. Look, we've chosen democracy after independence. We've, 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 many of us have chosen to stay in the Commonwealth, although that's beginning to change now. Uh, we want closer relationships with you, but you're not giving us any reason to stay in that relationship. And then you've got countries like China knocking
4: at the door saying, what do you need? And interestingly, we've had the African Union just now back the Caribbean's call for reparations and say it's time for Africa to have reparations for slavery as well. Africa, of course, a continent where the Chinese are very involved again in investing so that they can get the natural mineral resources that they need to fuel their economy. So it's all sort of a bit mind-blowing in a way.
3: The world is changing, Laura. It's fragmenting, new power blocks are fomenting, and Britain needs to understand and to make sure its people that it thought were its allies remain its allies. And I think that's something we may take for granted in this country.
4: Well, and reparatory justice is a really good way of making friends again with the Caribbean and paying that debt, but also creating allyship with a fellow democracy against the autocracies of this world?
3: Well, you know, I think, you know, we need to have a a better understanding of our own past because, you know, we can point the finger at autocracies here and there and so on. But I think in many of these countries, until Britain comes to terms with some of the brutality of its colonial past, the slave trading, what happened after the abolition of slavery, empire, and what still happens to this day. Until some of those things change, until some of that acknowledgement, they will not see us necessarily as the good guys. And I think that's something we have to kind of, we have to acknowledge and do something about. So
4: Clive... What now? We went to the Caribbean together. We've made this podcast. We've explored our shared history. The fact that your ancestors might have been enslaved by mine—a painful past. But what's next for you?
3: I think it's—it's it's opened my eyes in so many ways, and and I'm someone I I'm, I love. Kind of thinking my way through things, I love understanding how the world works, and this has given me a new lens through which to see the world and I intend to kind of drive that as f- as far as I can politically and i 'm really fortunate in that I have a platform in parliament, I have social media, um, I can do media sometimes I can do debates, so i 'm going to be pursuing this, and this has opened up all kinds of lenses for me to be able to see the world through you know in terms of who has wealth, why they have wealth you know, our geopolitical standing. You know, it's just been phenomenal. And I I just, it's kind of a target-rich environment at the moment.
4: It's been amazing, you know, personally and professionally. And I'll say that already there's a, a link for the future, which is I just spent the weekend in Nantes in France. And Nantes was a major shipping port during the slave trade that the French were involved in. And when I was in Nantes, Clive, I was invited there with the members of my family to meet a descendant of the enslaved in Martinique, which is in the French Caribbean, who's working with an 84-year-old descendant of French shipping heirs who were involved in the slave trade. They want to meet you, Clive. They want to come to London.
6: To London, to the Mother
4: of Parliament.
3: I'd be very happy for them to shout into the wilderness with me as well. No, no, we're not shouting into the wilderness. Well, if you are listening to this, we're not shouting into the wilderness. Um, no, that's fantastic, Laura. And I'd be, I'd be... I'd be chuffed to host them, and if we can get this conversation going in France, then that opens up, you know, some real possibilities and um, what yeah. we can achieve. Make some political space.
4: Well, you might think there's no political will for reparations here in Britain, let alone France. And if that's left you feeling a bit pessimistic, well, don't be, don't be. We, we're we going to highlight now some of the really amazing work that is happening around the world to try and make CARICOM's 10-point plan for reparations over slavery a reality.
3: Now, one of the people who's joined the calls for reparatory justice in recent years is Dennis O'Brien. Dennis is an Irish businessman and is the founder and chairman of the mobile network company Digicel.
4: Yeah, and Dennis is one of the people that I've met on this journey this year. You know, he sends me books to read. He's this massive intellectual as well as uh, being a a billionaire. He's made his fortune through Digicel, which is the main mobile phone network uh, in the Caribbean. So as a result, Dennis has spent many years working in the West Indies. And this year, 2023, he founded the Repair Campaign, basically joining the reparations movement, trying to amplify CARICOM's 10-point plan. So we asked him what the Repair
3: Campaign is doing.
6: We're we're working within the CARICOM 10-point reparations plan, and, you know, we think that's the whole grounding of what everything that we are doing so we're making sure that we keep within that framework
4: so do you see your work as amplifying the caribbean's existing 10-point reparatory plan for justice over slavery it's
6: about extending the 10-point plan and trying to take all all what uh, what's in those plans and trying to create a plan for each country And I I see, you know, the work that we're doing is totally complementary to the work that you're doing with the heirs of slavery because... What, what what you're doing is drawing, making awareness and you're going to a constituent in the United Kingdom that is, is saying, OK, we're going to try and make amends in whatever way possible for what mm-hmm. we've done. I think that is a really important platform as we all campaign together to get the end result. Are you
3: excited by the prospect of that? Do you think that's potential change in
6: the offing? Well, you know, I'm excited about, you know, extending the campaign once we've all the work done to actually go to the European Union and the United Kingdom. But the way we do that is very, very important. And I think it needs a grassroots build-up. I think working with the churches in the United Kingdom and also in the European Union and the various different countries is very important. Because if you look at the, the model here was the Millennium Debt Campaign. And Pettifor, Bono and all those, the the people that were behind that campaign, they built a grassroots campaign and suddenly it just popped up in front of Tony. So how are
4: you going to do that?
6: Uh, Well, we're working on a plan uh, to do that, to actually go throughout the whole of the UK to every church hall and to tell them what what we're doing and to appeal to them to support what we're doing. We already have seen the Church of England commit 100 million Pounds to what their form of reparatory justice is and so that's a big that is a very significant move we've seen your family the gladstone family so th- i think there's going to be a groundswell of people i
3: should mention that part of phase two of the repair campaign is funding a campaign coordinator in the united kingdom someone that i'll hopefully be collaborating with in the future Now, as we round off this series, we want to thank you all for listening. Yes. And as so many of our guests have said, this is an issue which has only become a talking point because of people learning about it. And with Dennis's thoughts in mind, we hope you'll share this story with others too. Join the conversation. Do some of the background reading. Find out more. This is an interesting area. And if you are interested in reading more, then please see the show notes on this programme.
4: Right, and someone who's going to feature prominently in the show notes and in the joint reading list from Clive and I is uh, Professor Hilary Beckles, who, of course, we interviewed for this podcast, Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, current godfather of the intellectual movement for reparations in the caribbean cuz Clive and I have both been heavily influenced by his books but i think my closing thought about this series clive is something that hillary beckle said at a dinner in september at the united nations during that world leader week and he said the reparatory justice movement will be the greatest political movement of the 21st century because it's about love and compassion and healing and that moved me and That's my thought and hope for the future. And that, for me, that idea is encapsulated with the closing voice in this series, Clive, and that's your dad, Tony, because meeting him in Grenada with you was just such a highlight.
3: It was lovely, and it was good to see him after so long. Um, And, yeah, it was a moving time for me and a moving moment. But my dad, Tony Lewis, will finish with some words of optimism to see us
1: off. Dad. Keep on keeping on. Just keep on keeping on. You've made real footsteps. You've made real
3: progress. Remember four or five years ago,
5: you know, it was not there. Now you have opponents, but your opponents now losing their clarity. I'm really proud because the message is getting true. It'll get you.